Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Pastor, where we look at movies, music, comics, and more from the perspective of faith. Hello everyone, this is your self-proclaimed pop culture pastor, Chris Perry. And today I have a, probably the most special guest that I've had the entire time I've been doing this podcast for the years we've been at this. I have Mrs. Pop Culture Pastor, Anna Jane Perry, here with me today. <laughs> Anna Jane and I have been married for 16 years now. I've been together for a little longer than that even. We have two kids. Uh, so we go way back, right, babe? You know it. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, you'll see why she's the guest today, kind of the only person that I could talk about this subject with and have it be appropriate. But before we get to what we're going to talk about, uh, I want to start just the way that we always start with giving a little bit of your church background, your spiritual bio, kind of how you grew up and where your faith is at now. So real quick, <laughs> it doesn't need to be a long story, but tell us a little bit about uh, where you're coming from there. All right. Well, the year was 1980, and I was, I'm just kidding. Um, I grew up a uh, pretty traditional Church of Christ. My mom was um, an incredible spiritual example for me. So I feel like I learned from the best next to, you know, God, Jesus, the Bible, Holy Spirit, etc. Um, I've always loved being a part of church. I've always felt like the best way to feel like you're part of a church community is to be involved and get to know people, and I uh, still kind of stand by that. I'm sure I'm, I know that I am probably a little more progressive in some of my views these days than I was, but I still feel like going to church is important, having a relationship with Christ and the Bible is important, and um, I love Jesus. All right. How do you feel? Did you expect to be a minister's wife, a pastor's wife growing up? How's that been? (laughs) That's a loaded question. (laughs) Um, I've complained a lot about the church on here, so I want to just give you a little shout out. Do you know, I never thought growing up, I'm going to marry a minister, but I wasn't opposed to it. And honestly, if I'm being straightforward here, I was mostly meant to be some kind of preacher's pastor's minister's wife because the I think the traditional expectations of a uh, pastor's wife are things that come mostly naturally to me anyway. Mm -hmm. So um, I was happy to step into the role. Um, Don't always love it Mm. because it's hard when you see um, your love struggling with things at work, um, especially with ministry, because it's so personal. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't change it. Well, that's for good the to most hear, part, because uh, <laughs> I'm still doing this, and you're still with me. And yeah, you, know, you have great baking skills, which is important. Casseroles uh, for days. As as I often tell many people, you're actually the pastor in the family because you'll just be, you know, at a random mechanic and start comforting someone who's gotten a phone call with some bad news, whereas I just like to sit in my office and read books about things and <laughs> record podcasts. So we are a good team, right? We are one flesh, and that's what we're celebrating today. But before we get to that, we also talk about uh, pop culture interests here. So what were some of the first things that you remember being really into when you were a kid uh, that really got you engaged in, in pop culture, books, movies, music, that kind of stuff? Boys. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, uh, I was a regular subscriber to Tiger Beat, Big Bopper, Bopper, like all those teen, teen Beat magazines that had all the cute posters of all the cute boys. And my room was plastered with uh, Jonathan Brandis, Leo DiCaprio, Mike Vitar, who was the pop culture love of my life, beneath mm. the Jet Rodriguez from Sandlot. Jim Lott's classic. I know. Killing me smalls. Jonathan Taylor. I mean, I was really boy crazy, and it was very much uh, pop culture related. Um, Also, my love for reading came from the original Nancy Drew series. So that was something I started when I was eight, 
and it ignited uh, a passion for books. So I've read all the pop culture books, except for Game of Thrones. That one was a little too much for me, but that's, I tried. That's fair. But then I didn't want to try. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But Harry Potter. Yep. Classic stuff. Even Twilight. Yeah, <laughs> it has time. Yep. You can avoid a good, well, not good, a romance. Right. Even if it's problematic. <laughs> but I've always loved the pop culture. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of uh, of uh, problematic romances and things that celebrate that, you know, can you believe some of the trash they play on the radio these days? You know, last my last episode, we were talking about content and what we should or shouldn't listen to, and I just I heard this song. I think it's a duet, and it I don't know. It was kind of surprising, right? It said, uh, "How sweet is your loving, my bride? Your loving is so much better than wine." And your scent, better than any perfume, sweetness drops from your lips. My bride, honey and milk are under your tongue. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind, blow on my garden, that its scent may spread everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. I have come to my garden, my bride, I have drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, dear friends, drink, and get drunk on love. Chris. Do you know who this is? I assume it's like Megan Thee Stallion or maybe it's another one of those Beyonce and Jay-Z duets. Babe, it's the Bible. Oh, so I guess spicy songs are okay then? I feel like it's a little more complicated than that. Oh, well, I guess I know what we're talking about today. (laughs) Well, as you probably saw in the description, uh, this episode is called Song of Songs Songs, which uh, I'm pretty proud of that title. So we're talking about the book of Song of Songs in Scripture and comparing that to you know, pop culture, uh, specifically music, that's doing similar things, and we're going to see how similar and how different it is exactly. Uh, but as you think about the book of Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, as it's sometimes called, uh, what was your experience with that book growing up? Did you hear a lot of sermons about Songs of Songs, uh, a lot of classes on this important theological work. Do you know, I actually feel like there was a sermon once because we did like the Bible in a year. And Mm -hmm. so our preacher preached on every part of the Bible for that week's reading. But man, I couldn't tell you a thing about it other than... Well, it's in there, so I guess we'll talk about it. Yeah. Other than maybe trying to figure out the resemblance of my temples being a pomegranate. (laughs) They are looking very pomegranate-y today. <laughs> oh, why, thank you. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, yeah, Song of Songs is, is Hebrew love poetry. This is a common genre in, in the ancient world. We have it in other ancient writings. Uh, the book is really a collection of, of poems. It's, it's not like there's a story to it. There's not a narrative. I mean, that's in the title, right? It's a song of songs. So, you know, it's got these two characters, and we're seeing things about their relationship, but I don't think... It's really one cohesive story. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about this book, it, you know, it, it's kind of unique in Scripture for several reasons. Uh, being love poetry is one of them, obviously. The other is that the female voice is actually dominant in the, the book. Uh, she speaks about 50, over 50% of the time. The man is, only, is under 40%. Um, and then there's also some friends that come in, kind of like a chorus. And you know, she in the book is is very active. She's the one that's pursuing him and going after him. She she says very clearly what she wants, uh, whether that's sexually or, or otherwise. So she is not kind of the, the passive partner in this relationship. Does that surprise you? I mean, I'm sure you've uh, read some you know Christian marriage books in your time, as as we all have. Is that what they usually recommend for women, that you be active and pursue uh, your man and tell him everything that you want? No. <laughs> well, you know, I, I have to say, as, as a woman who can speak her mind and, and typically wants to take the lead on things just in life in general, it is nice to see that kind of voice represented in the Bible. I know growing up, I would be so frustrated when 
oh, my mom or someone would be like, okay, you need to wait for this boy to ask you out. If you like him, you just make yourself available, uh, let him know like nice things about him and all that other stuff. And I was just like, I just, I like him. So I just want to ask him out. Okay. And then that wasn't appropriate because it needed to be the guy that made the move. Now, to be fair, uh, my mom was probably just trying to protect me a little bit because as I said, I was boy crazy and um, I probably needed to be uh, tamed reined a little in. bit, reined in a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's pretty common expectation in, in the Christian world and especially the more evangelical world of, yeah, you, you let the man do all the, the seeking. He's the adventurous one and, and the woman is like the damsel in distress just waiting for someone to come and rescue her. I mean, Disney movies for a long time. Right, yeah. So it goes beyond just Christian culture. But yeah, this kind of expectation that Song of Songs, the book of Scripture that really focuses most on romantic love, is telling a very different story. And, you know, it's often noted in pop culture that uh, men aren't always the best writers of women. Um, and so the fact that this book primarily comes from a woman's perspective, some even wonder, well, did a woman write it or was a woman involved in writing it? Which goes against, you know, the most common tradition is that Solomon, uh, the king, son of David, is the author of this book, right? Like I said, it's sometimes referred to as Song of Solomon. And it does in, in the very first verse of the, of the book mention him by name, but Actually, the word that's used there, the preposition, you know, could be to Solomon or for Solomon, of Solomon. It doesn't necessarily mean authorship. And when you see Solomon mentioned in the book, both times it's in third person, and it's actually not positive. Um, it's, you know, there's times where, you know, she'll talk about him, her lover, as the king, but that's probably a metaphor, right? I mean, that's pretty common today. I don't know if any of the songs we're going to talk about mention that, but that it's poetry. So maybe don't always take it so literally is, is a pretty good rule. And, you know, deeper than that, I mean, f- very famously, Solomon had like 700 wives and concubines. And so to me, the idea that, oh yeah, he wrote this love poem that's all about his love for one woman, uh, that, that kind of makes it meaningless. Uh, I think it's more meaningful to say that this was from some anonymous couple uh, that was committed only to, to one another and didn't need, you know, 699 other relationships uh, for whatever reason. Now, you know, we've touched on this a little bit already. You mentioned the pomegranates. Song Songs also is memorable for its uh, spicy symbolism. Any other favorites that uh, spring to mind <laughs> off the top of your head? Well, um, as the uh, man in this relationship, mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead and let you take take this one as there seems to be more fun yes the, more the fun descriptions about, uh your breasts are like uh, is it apples pigs? fawns well yeah there's no, one where it's two yeah. fawns well like you fawns. need to be refreshed with figs and apples yeah yeah but saying i want to climb the tree and take hold of the fruit i mean these are the verses that you know when you're in middle school and you're in church and you're bored of the sermon you start flipping through the bible because that's all that's there <laughs> You would go to those verses and giggle with your friends. I really love your peaches. Want to shake your tree? <laughs> there you go. See, Steve Miller Band also very biblical. Uh, so yeah, I mean, we're not going to dig into all of them, but there's a lot of descriptions of the body in in Song of Songs, and the imagery is kind of strange to us, referring to you know your your hair is like a flock of uh, of goats, uh, your teeth are like sheep. Uh, not one of them is missing, which I guess is a pretty big compliment back in that time. So, right, it, there's a lot of distance between us and them and uh, the specifics that language that, that is used. But in a lot of ways, it is a very common thing, uh, as we're going to see. So most of the music that we listen to in some way is also dealing with love and specifically dealing with sexuality. But some... Uh, especially through the history of the church, would say, well, no, that's that's not what it's really about. I mean, isn't this book really about the relationship between Christ and the church? You know, this actually reminds me of a quote by uh, Pseudo-Dionysus. Oh, yeah, that guy. Let me, let me uh, know if this jogs any memories for you, but it says, 
And in the songs, there are those passionate longings fit only for prostitutes. There, too, are those other sacred pictures boldly used to represent God, so that what is hidden may be brought out into the open and multiplied. What is unique and undivided may be divided up, and multiple shapes and forms be given to what has neither shape nor form. All this is to enable the one capable of seeing the beauty hidden within these images to find that they are truly mysterious, appropriate to God, and filled with a great theological light. Okay, so what off he's the top arguing, of my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you love those early church fathers. So yeah, I think his point there is well, if this was really just about you know two people in love and celebrating each other's bodies, well, that's only fit for prostitutes. What it's really about is this kind of mystical relationship, and it's pointing to these hidden mysteries. So you got to look past what it's actually saying and figure out these allegorical meanings. And it's true, you know, Israel or the church are both described as a bride, either of God or of Christ. And I think that works better in general than in specific, right? So if you're just thinking about the book in general of this uh, love between um, either a man and woman or between Christ and the church. Okay, that kind of works. But once you get specific into the imagery, that's where it kind of breaks down. I mean, this is the overall problem with allegorical readings is, well, everything represents something, but how do you know, right? The options just become endless. There's no way to prove which is more accurate, right? I mean, you've got another example of this. Yes. Uh, Hippolytus says this. When it says, your breasts are better than wine, it signifies that the commands of Christ delight the heart like wine. For, as an infant sucks upon breast in order to extract some milk, so also all who suck on the law and the gospel obtain the commandments as eternal food. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) We shouldn't laugh, right? Because when it refers to her two breasts, no, that's really... The law and gospel. Is that what we're calling them now? Yeah. (laughs) Let's just not use that again, please. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not editing that out. Sorry. Um, And you can find plenty of other interpreters from that time that would say, oh, yeah, it represents the law and the prophets, the Old and the New Testaments, the love of God, the love of neighbor. It's the inner and outer person. Um, the, The possibilities are endless once you start going down that route. But I think there's usually something else behind that of, you know, some shame over the body that thinking there's something inherently bad or sinful about sexuality itself, even between a husband and wife. And so, uh, you know, I don't want to, there's plenty more to be said about this and these writers' perspectives, but I, I know for some of them specifically, there's a little bit of that, well, we can't talk about this kind of stuff. That stuff is not spiritual, so we need to find some other spiritual meaning to it, which probably says a little bit more about them and some of their hang-ups. You know, I kind of wonder about Pseudo-Dionysus' wife if he says this is only fit for prostitutes. He probably was celibate, because a lot of them were, which also tells you a little something about why they would take it the way that they take it. Now, we're going to come back to this idea a little bit, but I think to start out, we do need to see that this book is what it's about, right? It is what it is. It's celebrating the love between this couple and specifically uh, the lovemaking that, that they're enjoying. They're celebrating one another's actual bodies. And so the way we're going to do this going from here is we're going to look at some different themes from Song of Songs and see how those are represented in modern pop songs. And so the first theme we're going to talk about is, like I just mentioned, this kind of body and sex positivity. And so we're going to hear a little bit from the song Drunk in Love by Beyonce and Jay-Z. This is from her 2013 album, uh, self-titled Beyonce. So let's hear a little clip from this song. I'm swerving on it, swerving, swerving on it, big body been serving all this, swerving, surfing all in this good, good. All right, so the title of that song actually 
comes from Song of Songs. That's why we're starting with it today. Uh, we heard it at the very beginning, Song of Songs 5.1. Uh, they say, let's be drunk in love. And so it's this celebration of their love for one another, uh, this married couple, Beyonce and, and Jay-Z. And, you know, I think I mentioned this before in my previous Beyonce podcast. She keeps showing up a lot. That In their relationship, they really are equals. They are not a couple where there's one who is dominant and one is passive. Uh, they are both uh, powerful and are willing to say what they want and what they need. And that's what she's doing on this song. She does this a lot through that that album. It's a pretty thirsty album overall, I would say. <laughs> um, so uh, what do you think about you know doing that so publicly? You know, we love each other, but we haven't written any very explicit love songs uh, to be heard by millions of people. That you know of. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we should be getting some royalties if that's the case. <laughs> So yeah, what what is the, what's the place of celebrating this love, not just personally, but you know, in this bigger scale? Well, overall, I think it's a good thing. I think that historically, the people that would maybe emphasize love or maybe uh, the more risque aspects of it were considered less than in a lot of ways, and so normalizing passion and and love and adoration for your partner is is healthy and important in in the not normalizing it it makes it mysterious in a bad way i don't i don't know how else to say that but it 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 makes it feel like it would make you feel guilty because right, there's something you're wrong about it yes we you're can't talk about it you're drinking of the wine that you should not be drinking of and doing those kinds of things. Um, I actually like that Song of Songs does talk about waiting. It does talk about um, being ready. And I think that when you can combine those two, those two thoughts of love is an incredible thing, but also you need to be mature enough to understand it and handle it that you need to carry those two things with you in order to have a truly satisfying um, sexual relationship. Because also in Song of Songs, it's, it's so much more than, than sexual too. Like it's, it's a, it's a thirsty book, but there is um, very obviously uh, an intimate knowledge of one another in that as well, because you can't, talk to a partner the way that these talk these partners talk to each other if you aren't familiar with them if you don't know them yeah like this isn't a first date casual sex kind of thing yeah this this is a couple just in the song and in the song of songs that they are intimately acquainted with one another and that's kind of what it's about and even just the hebrew idea of knowing someone right that's that's a euphemism that's very common uh, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived. That's not just <clears throat> trying to hide you know, what's really going on. It's, yeah, sex is an intimate thing. That is knowing someone on the deepest level and not feeling like you should hide that, you should be ashamed of that. Again, some of those uh, voices in the church you know, early on or even today will still think of sex as kind of a necessary evil to make more babies. That's not the biblical view. And so they're celebrating this in the song, just the joy of it, right? That we can be joyful about this. We don't have to keep this to ourselves, even if you know we're enjoying it. But yeah, this is this is a good thing. This is a great thing. Well, I've always thought it was interesting in Song of Songs when the friends just like chime in every now and then, like "Yeah, boy, get it, girl," you know that kind of thing. <laughs> but <laughs> yes, yeah, that is the biblical quote. Uh, yes, get it, girl. Yes, get it, girl is the biblical quote. Mm-hmm. But maybe in the message, I think I think maybe that's part of like, hey, you know, this is a good thing. This love is. It's like. Whenever we have sex and we send a gong to our close circle of friends, <laughs> and then we all get super excited, like, yeah, way to get some. I feel like it's the same. Yeah, that's a, a Scrubs <laughs> quote, by the way, for those that are not familiar. Okay, well, now it's getting getting a little hot in here, huh? <laughs> Just going back to the song, I, I think 
there's this, you know, the chorus is like, we woke up in the kitchen, say, how did this happen again? You know, and just that image of, you know, that's, that's how much they're celebrating one another in this. And, you know, my favorite line is probably when uh, Jay-Z comes in with his, his verse, uh, we sex again in the morning, your breast is is my breakfast. <laughs> it's just, wow, uh, poetry right there. What else can you say? Um, all right, so we see, you know, and this is a common thing through a lot of Beyonce's music, especially her most recent album, Renaissance, about celebrating yourself, um, being positive about yourself. Um, body positivity is is a hard thing. Um, Anna Jane, as, as a woman in 21st century America, do you ever struggle with any body shame, body positivity? Surely not, because you're so beautiful. Oh, well, thanks, babe. But uh, how much time do you have? they have been off and on on a diet since i was like 12 and now i've just kind of hit the point where i'm like you know what i like totina's party pizzas Mm. and i'm gonna eat one every now and then okay and i'm gonna be okay with that yeah i got my man (laughs) (laughs) he loves me as i am i do thankfully he's a butt guy because i got a big one all right. I hope uh, my mom is enjoying this podcast today. Hey, mom. <laughs> yeah, but in the song, the Song of Songs as well, this just idea of they are celebrating one another, and that includes the body. You know, kind of one of the famous lines early on where she says, I am black but beautiful, which I know for someone like Beyonce, that's something she's probably said in her music as well. Just things that others might be ashamed of. No, we are going to celebrate this. And like we said, it uses some weird imagery of towers and goats and sheep, but it's all a way of, of seeing the beauty in the other person. And, you know, that's, yeah, love does kind of maybe skew your perspective, but shouldn't it, shouldn't it help us appreciate what is beautiful about another person and tell them so that they know when there are so many other voices in this world that are trying to convince us otherwise. Well, coming, going kind of along with this idea of body positivity, sex positivity, Uh, There's this bigger picture in Song of Songs of the goodness of creation, of the material world, as something created by God, I would argue. And so it uses a lot of nature imagery, and there's a lot of imagery of food specifically, uh, especially when it's referring to uh, the act of love. And so the song we're going to use to think about this is Watermelon Sugar by Harry Styles. Let's hear a little bit of our friend Harry. Tastes like strawberries on a summer evening And it sounds just like a song I want your belly and that summer feeling I don't know if I could ever go without one of sugar Okay, so yeah, everybody loves Harry Styles. Uh, we've been listening to him nonstop since his new album came out this summer. This is from uh, the previous album, Fine Line. Uh, but even my daughter loves Harry Styles, but she does not know what this song is actually about, which actually I've kind of been surprised to find a lot of people didn't know how uh, specific it was being. Uh, a lot of that kind of, if you haven't seen the video for Watermelon Sugar, I would encourage you to go check it out, and then there will be nothing left to the imagination. If you have questions, put them in the comment section. <laughs> yes. And I guess I will answer them. Anna Jane will answer them. But yeah, the video actually starts by saying this song is dedicated to touching, which is uh, not very subtle. We're going to talk about that idea in just a second. So yeah, I'm, I'm not going to explain it to you uh, because, again, that's not really what you need to do with poetry. But uh, when he's talking about eating watermelon, that's uh, probably talking about something else. And it actually is, like I said, it's a common thing in Song of Songs. That's kind of what inspired this podcast in some ways. And so just as an example from chapter 7, here's how that that starts. He says, How graceful are your feet in sandals, O queenly maiden! Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl, may it never lack mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Okay, so in this, this poem, there's a lot of these poems where they're kind of listing, going through, going up or down the body. And this one is starting at the bottom with the feet and working its way up. 
And again, I'll just let you figure out what navel might actually be a euphemism for. It may not actually be the belly button, people. I mean, this is what the song is doing. It's not, you know, trying to hide this stuff. It's just using this, this poetic language to talk about uh, the way that you can enjoy one another. Now, uh, Harry Styles, I don't know, do you think that he is uh, intentionally doing this? What do you think about his love life, his commitment? I think Harry loves the ladies. Hmm. And the ladies love Harry. Yes, they do. And probably a lot of guys, too. Uh, but emphasis on the plural there, right? the ladies. I think you've remarked more than once, um, why is there always a bunch of ladies in all of his videos surrounding him, right? Which I'm guessing is just kind of the way that his life actually is. This is more like a documentary. <laughs> just lots of sweaty ladies around him all the time. Because he is so adorable. He is, yes. We love Harry. But yeah, I, I think we would have to say he's a little bit more like Solomon when it comes to how many ladies he um, is enjoying. I hopefully, you know, it seems like he's set, maybe trying to settle down now, and, and that's probably a better move. Uh, but yeah, when you're a world-famous pop star, there are probably lots of opportunities, a lot of watermelon to enjoy, you might say. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say that. There's a lot in this that I'm going to want to edit out, but we're going to leave it in for you people. I know you want it. There's actually a playlist that I've put together, and you can I'll put a link to this in the show notes, of other songs that connect to Song of Songs. But really, my kind of guiding idea behind it was, what are some other songs that use food imagery to talk about sex? Uh, so there's more than one song called Honey. Uh, there's Sweetest Pie uh, by Megan Thee Stallion and Dua Lipa. There's a song called Coffee. All of those are not actually about food and drink. So it's just this common idea, right? It goes back thousands of years to this poetry. It's common in our songs. Why do you think that is? Why is this such an easy thing to go to when we're thinking about, about love and romance to bring food into it? Well, it's, it's your senses, right? It's, it's things that are pleasing to your body. If I have a good piece of pie, my mm. body is very pleased. Mm-hmm. Likewise, if you have a good piece of pie, my body is also very pleased. <laughs> and um, I wish you guys could see his face right now. <laughs> um, but it's this, these are senses, senses mm. that are meant to delight mm -hmm. us. Like God gave us taste buds. He also gave us different colors and flavors and textures of food that's meant to be enjoyed and delighted in. If it wasn't, it wouldn't be so beautiful. Likewise, God created sexual pleasure. God created the clitoris. Like these are things that are meant to be enjoyed. And it would be, I think, disappointing to God who spent a lot of time thinking through what, what our body was meant to experience and love. I mean, yeah, to go back to food, we don't need all of these different varieties and flavors and colors and tastes. There could just be like, you know, you could just eat beans for every meal or, you know, pick a very simple diet and it's just like fuel for your body to give you energy. But we know it's more than that and we enjoy more than that. And in the same way, if sex were just about making more babies and procreating, well, it could have just been that, but God and in his infinite grace made it even more enjoyable. And like you mentioned, it's not always easy. You know, you have to pay attention. Women need more attention to fully be pleased in this. And, and I think that's actually part of God's intent that, you know, partners would take the time to make sure that it is mutually enjoyable and that it, it doesn't become just a selfish enjoyment and we're using one another. But as we hear in Song of Songs and I guess we're hearing in Watermelon Sugar, it can be a mutually pleasing thing when we make it that. So we've seen that you know some of these songs have not been too subtle in uh, the images and language that you're using. And sometimes it can be even less subtle than that. So the last song we're going to talk about is I'll Make Love to You by Boys to Men. Let's hear a little bit of this one. Submit to your demands. I will do anything. Girl, you need only if I'll make love to you like you want me to. 
Okay, so what do you think that song is actually about, Anna Jane? Food? (laughs) (laughs) Yikes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, sometimes there is no need for subtlety. This is just uh, a guy guy and his friends, which is kind of weird, just saying, uh, here's what I'm going to do for you, and here's how we're going to enjoy one another. You know, do sexy songs need to be subtle? Is it better to use euphemisms? What do you think? Um, I think there's a place for both. Sometimes you just want to you just want to know what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. Boys to Men does that very well and and very beautifully, might I add. Yeah. This is a song that both of us still know all of the words to somehow <laughs> even though it came out when we were in elementary school. I think I was in 8th grade. Okay, middle so, school maybe. Yeah. Um I actually have a story about this song. Okay, so when I was in the 7th or 8th grade, I think it was 8th grade, my friends and I were totally obsessed with the New Boys to Men album, too. And um, we were listening to it all the time, particularly I'll Make Love to You and On Bended Knee. I was at my friend Nikki's house, and we were listening to it. And Nikki's mom, Mary... I guess, kind of tuned in to uh, the words a little bit. And she's like, girls, I don't know if this is an appropriate song for you guys to be listening to. And of course, in our minds, we're not thinking, oh, this is about to happen. We're going to go find a guy and we're going to light a fire and, and whatnot. Yes, even though you're boy crazy. I mean, I was so boy crazy. But even then I was like, oh, when I get married someday, this is going to be <laughs> so wonderful because this is real life. <laughs> Anyway, so Mary was like, I think we should probably turn that off. And I said, oh, Mary, don't worry about it. It's okay. I just read an interview from Boys to Men where they said that they actually dedicated this song to their future wives. So it's all about their marriage and their love life there. Uh, Mind you, this interview was not real. I yeah. one, so you made that up. You lied. I 100% lied and made it up. And as an adult, <laughs> as a parent now, I was like, there is not a chance that Mary believed a single word that I said about that. But she was probably just too tired to, to mess around with it. But I remember thinking, yes, did. I did it. Now I can keep listening to voice to Very men. proud of you. Yeah, and so, like we mentioned earlier, it's it's weird. I mean, the song came out in 94, so I would have been 12. You would have been a little older than that. That, that We still know every word to this song about <laughs> making love uh, that we learned in middle school or elementary school. It's not subtle. You know, it is it is what it's about, right? That's why sh- your friend's mom picked up on that. But it's okay. You know, it sometimes you can just say what it is and celebrate that. And he's very clear in it. Like, I'm going to light candles. We're going to pour wine. We're going to take our clothes off. It's like, yeah, those are those are the steps that you, <laughs> you go through. You, know, you always got to light candles. And, you know, it, that's okay. It's it's romantic because it's celebrating It is what is happening. It doesn't always need food analogies. We don't always need euphemisms, as fun as those can be. Sometimes you just want to say what you want to do with your partner. And, you know, I, I realized this as we were recording that I talked about Song of Songs being very female focused, that the female voice is dominant. And yet two out of the three songs that I chose to talk about are uh, by men. And even the Beyonce song, Jay-Z, has a verse in it. And yet even in those, it's still focused on the partner, right? That it's not just about personal pleasure, uh, maybe a little bit with Harry and Watermelon Sugar. But especially boys to men, right? They're singing about, I'm going to do all these things for you. That he wants us to be a positive, uh, pleasurable experience for the partner, not just for himself. And he even says in there, I submit to your demands, uh, which, again, sometimes goes against the way that we think it should work in evangelical Christian culture. And we're going to come back to that idea in just a little bit. It's meant to be something that's enjoyed together. I think all these songs... Can celebrate that. At least that's what it's meant to be. Now, as we're celebrating, and Song of Songs is celebrating sex and love and, and the human body, we might start to think, well, is just anything goes, right? Any song is okay because this is a good thing that God created. 
And so the the song that I think of for this would be uh, WAP by Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion. I w- I'm, we're not going to play it. Anna Jane is uh, not a fan of that one. Not my favorite. Uh, you know, I think you don't have to be like a Puritan stuck in the mud to say that, you know, maybe that song goes a little too far sometimes. You know, I know some a lot of people enjoy it. But it's really not a song about uh, an, an enjoying a committed relationship. It's just about casual sex and using a lot of I mean, sometimes funny language to talk about that. What what surprises me about that song is I remember when it came out in 2020 at the end of the year that multiple you know music sources that I read or listen to named that the song of the year, which you know it doesn't really have much of a beat. There's like not much musicality to it, but they said like oh because they're celebrating without shame uh, their sexuality. It's like well it's not actually the first female rappers even to do that, right? We've heard we had Salt and Pepper, so it. I didn't see it as groundbreaking or revolutionary as, as some people did. And I think some of that was actually, in my view, they're just trying to push back. And say, if you don't like this song, you're just, you hate women and you hate sex. Well, I think there could be a, a middle ground. And that's kind of where we want to think about this. Is there a middle ground where we can both celebrate sexuality, but also acknowledge that there are some limits that we want to take it seriously and go back to Song of Songs and see what it says about it. Yeah, it even says, like several times, don't awaken love till it desires. Right, this is a theme verse. It's, I think it's spoken by the, the chorus, the girls, who are saying, like, I know this sounds great, but, but don't rush it, right? Don't force it. I mean, what do you hear in that phrase, don't awaken love till it desires? So if you think about being a teenager... And just like you're super horny, right? Um, you think mm-hmm. about stuff like that all the time. Um, and that is a desire. But I don't think that this is what, if you, if you take this first within the context of the book, that's definitely not the kind of desires we're, we're talking about. Like it's, it's taking it in the context of love, like awakening love till it desires. And, and, and love takes time love takes uh, mutual experiences i mean those those are two like really important things to create a deep true love and a and a love that is that is worthy of spending your time together as a couple like these yeah. two people in song of songs does yeah it doesn't say don't awaken desire until you want it right it's desire is going to be there um but it's connected to love, right? Wait for the love to blossom, to use you know nature imagery again. And there's even points in the book where it's like love or you know lovemaking can make you faint and need sustenance, right? Are you prepared for what goes into this? But more than that, right, there's a lot of baggage and, and other things that come with sex. And I think song the song is trying to give us uh, just a word of caution of you need to be ready for everything that goes into this. This is not just body parts you know, coming together. Smashing. (laughs) Yeah, uh, there's more. And again, the celebration in Song of Songs, I would say outweighs the caution, but both are needed. And so we want to think about a a healthy sexual ethic. We're going to spend a lot of time on this. There are good resources about that that I can mention later. The way I look at it, what I see, there's an unhealthy secular sexual ethic and an unhealthy evangelical Christian sexual ethic. So the unhealthy secular ethic is about casual sex. It's just you. It's just your body. Do whatever feels good to you. You know, as long as you're not being harmful, generally, it's okay. What do you see as the dangers of that kind of sexual ethic? As long as it's not hurting anyone, anything goes. Well, I see it as lessening the value of sex and and the purpose of sex. Sex is not about self-pleasure. I mean it can be, but also <laughs> you can have self-pleasure without sex. Mm-hmm. Like that is that is just like no big deal. But sex awakening love when love desires and sex in the con- context of song and songs is is much deeper than that. And and just like anything, when you expose yourself to something over and over and over again, it 
takes away the weight of what you're actually doing with somebody. Yes, there should be two consenting adults, emphasis on adults. There should be um, a level of comfort there, like with the other person. But also, it's a big deal. Yeah, so sex is not just a casual thing. And I'm, I'm reading a book right now called The Great Sex Rescue by Sheila Ray Gregor. Uh, I'm probably pronouncing that last name wrong, but I'll put it in the show notes. And one of the things she even does is make a distinction between sex and intercourse, uh, where we tend to talk of them as the same thing, but she talks about sex as there is a relational side to it. It is an intimate thing. Going back to what we mentioned earlier, that the biblical word is to know someone. So don't have sex with someone you don't know. I think that's the name of one of the chapters. Because it is intimate, there needs to be that, that level. And yes, we are pro-consent. Uh, that's a, a necessary message between consenting adults. And yet, I don't think that that's all there is, which is sometimes where the secular sexual ethic, that is hard to say, uh, can be a little unhealthy. Okay, so that's the danger on the secular side. How can sex be unhealthy in the evangelical or the Christian world in the church? What are some unhealthy sexual ethics there? Where to start? Um, I will say, I remember um, once I was a counselor at a church camp. And of course, when you're at a church camp with high school students, you always have a session about sex. <laughs> and actually, so there's two things. There's two things. There, two different camps. Okay, when I was the counselor, we were like, okay, we really want to emphasize how God created each person, and that person belongs to God and not you as their girlfriend or their boyfriend. So how can we really drive that home? And I remember we had all of the girls bring something that was very special to them, and we put it in a bag and then we took the bag behind a tree and burned the bag. And the message that we were saying is, this is what you do when you have sex with someone. You're taking something that's special, that's meant for marriage, and ruining it. Mm. And I look back at that, and I am mortified. Yeah. Mortified by that. And some of the girls were crying because they actually... <laughs> I know, I know, because they actually thought we'd burned their stuff. And then, of course, we were really laying on the guilt of uh, the the importance. Of course, this was for the girls, okay? I'm certain it wasn't talked about that way for the guys. It's because one of the things that we were taught in purity culture was how much of the responsibility of it be- fell on the woman and not the man. And that brings me to my second church camp example. When I was a camper at church camp, the director got all of the, the older kids together and talked about how it wasn't a smart idea to walk arm in arm with someone of the opposite sex because there could be an accidental boob graze. Mm, as scripture warns us about. Exactly. Those accidental boob grazes, man, watch out. <laughs> um, but like that, then the guys are just going to start thinking about sex. So you as the woman would be causing them to sin by putting your arm in theirs to where their arm is maybe next to your breast. Mm-hmm. Even and if it doesn't touch, they're probably yes. still thinking about it. And so I remember um, Aubrey and I, my best friend, we were talking with our guy friends about it. And they were like, I would never think of, I, I don't even, it's not even a thing. But then I remember thinking, but are they just saying that because they want to have an accidental boob grace? <laughs> <laughs> and I, when I think back to these experiences, I was just like, for one, that should not have been my responsibility as a young, impressionable, blossoming woman, for lack of a better word. And two, how did we get to that point where we're so concerned about accidental boob grazes and taking away sex that we're willing to bring people to to tears about it and to question their motives and everything? It just, it's not biblical, for one, I can tell you that. 
Yeah. So, I mean, you named it. Purity culture is kind of what we're talking about, which came about, kind of got big in the 90s when we were growing up. And it did focus so much on um, shame and, like you said, putting all the emphasis really on it's the woman's job, the girl's job to protect their purity uh, because men can't control themselves. That was a very common message. It's, it's bad on both sides because you have to do all this work. You always have to think about everything you're wearing and all these rules about how many inches long your shorts have to be. It's, again, never anything for the guys uh, because we're the visual creatures, not you. Right? Women don't lust. They don't enjoy sex. It's, it's all just men wanting all these things. And so it's, I know at its heart it was trying to avoid you know, objectification of, of women, but ended up objectifying them in a different way, right? Secular culture can objectify women as, you know, just look at this, look at her body and look at all these things. But then evangelical culture turns around and says, yeah, she's an object still. She's just, she's a stumbling block, right? Calling someone a stumbling block is making them an object. So it puts all the responsibility there on the victim, not the perpetrator. Yeah. And it gives the perpetrator permission, an excuse almost. Right. You can't help yourself. Guys. Right. Boys will be boys. Did you see what she was wearing? Like I couldn't help but look at her legs or her breasts or her stomach or whatever because she was showing it there for all the world. Yeah. And like you said, it actually would put these ideas into guys' heads where we weren't thinking about it. But now that you said it, I might. And so it makes us out to be worse than we are. It puts too much responsibility on women, and there's just, I mean, you can read story after story of the ways this has affected uh, both men and women and and their sexual lives going forward. But if you go back to Jesus, well, he says, if if your eye causes you to lust, you pluck it out. So he's putting the responsibility on the person who's doing something wrong, and we don't have time to get into what is lust and when does that happen. But the point is, I think this is where... We need to go back to and hear these other voices that are saying it is about consent and both people making a choice and taking responsibility for their choices in sex and in everything that that surrounds it. So it's a longer conversation. Lots of people have had this conversation. The way I would kind of sum it up is that conservative people need to focus more on consent. Progressive people need to focus more on commitment. I think if you can bring those two things together, consent and commitment, that's where we find the the most healthy sexuality. And I think that is what Song of Songs is celebrating. So as we close, we want to look at just a couple of passages from the book again and see some of these themes and what the book is trying to do and how, how it's trying to help us understand the nature of love. So one of the first themes, and I think we've seen this already some, is with all the nature imagery and talking about creation and uh, body positivity, is in a lot of ways, Song of Songs is trying to take us back to the Garden of Eden. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. Yeah, so if you can't figure out what they're saying, this is they're outside enjoying one another. So to use the Genesis story, it's this fruit is not forbidden. And here we have a couple who are not ashamed of their naked bodies, and they love equally. The way I understand Genesis is that before sin enters the picture, there is equality between genders. This idea of, well, it says it in chapter 3, men will rule over and your desire will be for him. Right? That's, that's showing that after sin, there's this inequality between sexes. And that's what we see in in the world. But Song of Songs is calling us back to the way it was meant to be. I am my beloved's and he is mine. That I mean it's it's a mutual submission to one another. We belong together. Yeah. Right. It's not I belong to him and he can do what he wants and I'll just obey him. Oh, it's we yeah, it's mutual. And again, she's the one saying it. Uh, I submit to you, you submit to me. And that is true biblical love. And then I think the most important verse in the whole book to me is near the end in chapter 8, verse 6, where it talks about how deathly serious love is. If you want to read that for us. 
Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, passion fierce as the grave, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. So I actually just did this, and I got this uh, tattooed on my heart as uh, a sign of my love and a reminder that this is a permanent thing that will always be with me. Uh, you know, seal is kind of an indication of commitment, uh, belonging to, to one person. And then you know it has this comparison between love and death. Love is as strong as death. I don't know, how does that hit you? That sound positive, negative, a little scary? I mean, death is serious. Like, when you're dead, you're done. So we take death seriously. Like, we take how we, how we live in our lives seriously, and all of that is kind of like leading up to death. So how, how is that comparing with love? I mean, everything we do should be leading up to this fiery love, this equal love. It's something to be taken seriously. Don't take it lightly. It's as strong as, as death. You can't stop love. You can't stop death. Yeah. Now, yeah, death comes for us all. <laughs> um, it's unstoppable in that way. And as we mentioned there, you know, with love, there's some control and you want to think about being wise with that. But it has this intense power. And when it's real love, there's a way in which it also can be unstoppable and it's fiery, like it says, right? It's as fierce as the grave. It flashes like fire. I think, again, that's a good analogy. Fire is good. Fire gives life. I mean, that's what the sun is. We'd, we'd be dead without it. Uh, but fire can also burn you. Fire can also be dangerous. And I know we've, we both, probably everyone listening, has been burned by love at some point in their life. And so sex and romance are good. We, in some sense, can't live without it. But it's dangerous if it's not respected. And you know the way that this makes this, I think, the most serious, depending on the way you translate it, that last line can say it's the very flame of the Lord. It uses uh, a shortened form of the divine name. Now, some translators and commentators think that that's just kind of used as a way to saying like a, a really powerful flame. But this is the way I prefer to read it. And that makes it the only time in the entire book where God is named. It's saying to me that God is the source of this fiery, passionate love. That God, who exists in a communal relationship as Trinity, that love is what animates God, is God's very being. Uh, and God is best experienced in love. And that's not just limited to romantic love, but it doesn't exclude it either. And so I think this is the place to go back to those kind of spiritual or maybe even allegorical readings, uh, that we, you know, take Song of Songs seriously for what it's saying about, you know, actual human life and the experience of, of sex. But there is a deeper level where it, that is a spiritual experience in some way. You know, this desire comes from God, and our ultimate desire is God. And I don't, I don't want to you know, take that in like a weird sexual way, but... Jesus is my boyfriend type right, of thing. Right, yes. And you can find lots of worship songs that are kind of doing that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something deeper and more mystical. I think of someone like John of the Cross, who has this poetry, The Living Flame of Love is the name of one of his books, where he's talking about this deep desire for God. And that that is a positive thing that... So we want to see the ways that our human love points to divine love. Human love is good in and of itself as a gift of God, and yet it's not just a means to an end. It can, it can be both, and we want to hold all of that together. Well, as we're wrapping up this discussion, we have one last song we want to play. This is one that Anna Jane actually introduced to me called Set Me as a Seal. So let's hear a little bit of that.
Okay, so what do you love about this piece? Well, I mean, it's beautiful. It's a fluid song, and the fact that the harmonies ebb and flow together, there is a more male voice, and then there's a part, uh, if you listen to the entire song, where it's just a female singing, and so there's a very much a back and forth of love, just like in Song of Songs. Uh, we sang it in choir in high school, and it's just one that's always stuck with me. Yeah, it, it, to me, it's like, is it singing about human love? Is it singing about divine love? I think this is a good example of maybe we don't need to try and separate those so much, that they are somehow one and the same in a more mystical sort of way, because love is one of those things that can transcend uh, those boundaries. It can be a transcendent experience where connection to God, connection to other people, somehow those those are joined. And so I think ultimately that's what Song of Songs does. And so hopefully the next time you hear a pop song that's singing about this, it can mean a little bit more to you too. It can connect with the love that you've experienced and where that love is ultimately pointing. Hey, love you, babe. Love you too. <laughs> All right, well, as we're wrapping up, I want to do one of our final segments, our pop culture consolations and desolations. So this comes from the spiritual practice of the prayer of examine, where you look at where the spirit of God has been moving in your life, where you've been uh, maybe shutting out God's spirit, but we use it just to recommend something that we're enjoying or something that we didn't enjoy. So Anna Jane, what's something this week from pop culture that's been giving you life? Well, I just finished this magnificent book series the final book came out in 2018, so I maybe I'm a little late to the game, but it's the Throne of Glass series, and it is just this sweeping, epic world, uh, fantasy fiction, very Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones, but like the political intrigue of Game of Thrones, not like all the ridiculous sexual violence. yeah the sexual violence mm -hmm. of Game of Thrones and some of its ridiculousness, but it's it is the power of being kind, of goodness, um, the strength. There's seven books, and I started reading them this year, and I finished the last one yesterday, and it was just everything. I've, I've seen you be very absorbed in them for the last seven or eight months. I become an extremely irresponsible parent and wife when I am in a good part mm -hmm. of that book. That's what we want out of our pop culture. It's so good that you <laughs> ignore your actual responsibilities. Uh, yeah, I look forward to getting around to them when, when I have time for Someday. that kind of reading. Someday. <laughs> well, kind of on that same note of fantasy uh, in Game of Thrones, I've been pleasantly surprised with the new series House of the Dragon. Uh, it just started on HBO Max about you know 200 years before the, the last series, talking about the Targaryen dynasty. Honestly, I was really unsure about even checking it out before it started because of how terribly Game of Thrones ended and a lot of the flaws with that show that they never seemed to be able to, to reconcile. But I've been really enjoying the show so far, and it focused a lot on the politics and how you use power, which I think is what that show does best, is kind of help us think about that. And especially the fact that like this is the first time that we're seeing a king in this world who is not a horrible person. He's not really the best king, and that's part of the problem, but he's trying to, to do what's right and trying to think about his family. And so that's been a welcome change to the normal Game of Thrones thing. But And we'll see how it goes. It could go off the rails eventually too. But for now, I am enjoying House of the Dragon. All right, Anna Jane, anything that's not giving you life? Any pop culture desolations this week? Oh, I have them. Uh, fantasy football. How dare you? <laughs> fantasy football season has started. And and here's the thing. I grew up with sports in the house. My dad was baseball, football. I mean, all the sports. Sunday afternoon was nap time and watch whatever sport is on TV. So it's not like I hate the world of sports. I love a good sports ball game. Uh, but I did not marry a man that was super into sports. I married someone who loved music 
and nerd stuff and uh, pop culture and was smart and witty and funny. That was, and I, he is still all those things, mind you. I just didn't marry someone who I ever thought would get into fantasy football. And now all of a sudden, Chris is super into fantasy football and I just can't with it. I cannot hear him talk about it. I don't want to know about the stats. <laughs> and it just does not give me life. But we made an arrangement. Mm-hmm. I will let him talk about it for two minutes at a time whenever he deems necessary. But then we cut it off because my eyes start glazing over. Yes. And I've, I've learned to notice that look. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm also surprised by this interest in fantasy football. I'll just say that I've been playing for few years now and I mean the way that I can kind of approach it is it's really just I mean fantasy is right there in the title right this is a role-playing game for people who don't think they're nerds and so you're just doing what you know I would do in my video games of you assemble your party and your team and they have different abilities it's just their quarterbacks instead of tanks and healers so that's that's the way I kind of got into it but yes I do think about it way more than I need to, but I am very excited that the football season is starting, I guess today is uh, the first game. So that's enough about football. I don't really have a big desolation today, but I guess the only thing I would say is there hasn't really been much good new music in the last month. August just kind of seems to be one of those months for movies and music where not a lot of good stuff comes out, but I am looking forward to some Big albums the the rest of the year. Taylor Swift just announced she's putting one out. The 1975 have an album coming out soon, and I've been listening to all the singles from that pretty much daily to the point that I'm sure Anna Jane is sick of them. So, yeah, good stuff is coming out. Something to look forward to there. Well, as we close today, we have to get serious, as we often do, and I hope that this conversation we've had today has reinvigorated your love, maybe your love for your spouse, your love for God, they've renewed your love for a pop culture pastor. As you reflect on all that it has meant for you and the ways that you want to celebrate it. And so as the song does, I want you to be able to celebrate it publicly. Write poems. Well, don't do that. Share it on social media. That is the best way to express your love for this podcast. Like, subscribe, give us a review. Spread the word so that others can celebrate and find the joy that you have found with your beloved podcast here. Well, thanks for joining us today. A special thanks, of course, to Anna Jane, our beautiful guest. You're welcome. Our uh, theme music is Be Thou My Vision from the 8-Bit Hymnal by Mr. Tyler Larson. You can find more content on Facebook and Instagram at PopCulturePastor. Next time in two weeks... September 22nd is Bilbo Baggins' birthday, and so we will be talking about Lord of the Rings. Uh, So catch up on Rings of Power, and we'll see what we make of it and its theology. You are now dismissed. Go in peace.